Amen. You can grab a seat. We'd... If you got your Bible, as I mentioned, we're going to be opening up to the book of Hebrews. Um, you know, <laughs> it's interesting. I mentioned this a little bit during the announcements, but it, it's been such a weird teaching season for us, for real. Like exactly a year ago, you know, when all this kind of broke and we stopped meeting, we, we actually stopped meeting for a period of time. And we did some stuff online and some prayer gatherings and things like that. But we didn't meet again until June and we were in the park. And from June through the end of October, we met outside. But it was more like this Bible study kind of picnic feel. And it didn't have the same kind of in terms of preaching and teaching the way that we were used to. And so Brandon and I were just unpacking. We were actually alternating every week, and which is not something we normally do. And, and we were alternating every week. And we are just kind of exploring things that God was laying on our heart. And we were trying to keep things into this sort of 15-minute window, and we'd do some worship. And, and it was great, and we enjoyed it, and it was fantastic. But it wasn't really what we, what we love. And then when we gathered back in here, our, our heartbeat was really... We need to be brief and we need to make sure we get people in and out and we want to make sure we cut down on the possibility of spreading coronavirus and all those kind of things. And that occupied a lot of our thought and so we were like, let's keep everything as tight as we can. And we knew at any moment we might have to, to stop for a while. We actually had to do that. We had two weeks. To, uh, we had to take a break. and then So it just has felt very disjointed for us because normally if you've been here for any period of time, we love to work through text. Like that's the way I love to preach. I love to work and teach through text and we haven't been able to do that. But now we just feel like it's time. And I've been spending a lot of time this past year just kind of exploring God's word and, and where we've been and where we want to go and kind of what he's been laying on my heart. And, and we ended up landing in the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews is a fascinating book. It's like this incredibly important theological um, and it's, I can't really use the word, I'm going to use the word book and letter, but really Hebrews is a sermon. It's actually written differently than most of the other books. It's written as this sort of great address. And so it's written in this way that sort of lays out this powerful sort of long sermon, if you will. And it, you'll just feel it from the beginning how different it is. But, but nonetheless, it's an incredibly important theological work because it's setting up two really important things, the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. And the entire book points to those things, that Jesus is not, over all, not only over all things, but in all things he holds them together. And the folks that this letter is written to or this sermon was spoken to were really dealing with a lot of very similar issues to what we might have, which is asking questions in the middle of a series of, of doubts and struggles and, you know, is all this really worth putting our heart into or should we be doing something else? And, you know, where does Christ fit into all this? And as we unpack this past year, I think a lot of us have had some similar questions. God, where are you in all this? What does this look like? Life has been challenging. It's been hard. It's been this. It's been that. We're hearing this news. We're hearing that news. Like, where is God in the middle of all these things? And, and for a lot of that, Hebrews is this sort of rescuing voice in the wilderness. It's this reminder that God has never left, that he is always at work, and that he is in all things and through all things in the person of Jesus Christ. And so like those journeys we've been on before, we've explored sections and, and or books of text. We're just going to kind of start. Now I spent a lot of time outlining the book and breaking it down, but as I was even getting ready for this week, this morning, I just thought there's no way I'm going to be able to keep to that because it's just such a 
book that is alive. It just moves. And so uh, we're going to do our best and we'll wind up wherever we wind up. But we're going to work through it piece by piece. And I love teaching like this. And here's the reason I love it is because I want you to have an encounter with God's word. That's my whole entire heartbeat and passion as a preacher is that I want you to encounter God's word. I want you to fall in love with it. I don't care if you like what I say. I don't care if you're entertained. I really don't care if you just want to even come back. What I want you to do is encounter God's word. We want to be bibliocentric. We want everything that you do here on a Sunday morning to be encountered and wrapped around the word of God. If there's ever a Sunday that you show up and you're like, man, I really didn't need to bring my Bible that week, then leave and go find a church that preaches the word. And so we love to work through text that way because we want you to see the incredible picture of redemptive history that God has done and is doing through Jesus Christ. And so if you can walk out of here and have a deep, rich understanding and passion for God's word, then that's what we want. So this, this, this study, this thing is really an introduction to say we want you to see God fully alive in Scripture. And so the best way to do that is to just work through Scripture, even the hard parts. And there's certainly a bunch of those that we're going to run to in Hebrews that we're like, what do we do with this? Well, instead of skipping it and dancing around it and just picking out the fun parts, we're going to go headlong through all of it and we're going to wrestle with it together. And hopefully along the way it's going to be, going to be really powerful. Hebrews is, um, like I said, it's rich and it's deeply theological and it's really, really important. And so as a quick survey or overview kind of of the book, just so you can get an idea of what it is, we really don't know who wrote it. Um, we don't really have any idea. Scholarship has a bunch of different thoughts about it. For a long time, almost 1,200 years, they believe that Paul wrote it. In fact, for about 400 to about, oh, I don't know, I think it was like 1,400 um, A.D., they believed it was another Pauline epistle. In fact, they called it uh, Paul, the Pauline letter to the Hebrews. Um, but it's really pretty much agreed upon that Paul couldn't have written it. It doesn't sound like him. It doesn't have any of the, the kind of nuances that Paul had. I mean, it's theologically similar, but it doesn't have any of those kind of stamps that Paul had. And then in, in chapter 2, verse 3, it makes an allusion to the idea that whoever the author was had never had a personal encounter with Christ or had any personal revelation. Of course, we know that Paul on the road to Damascus had this incredible experience with the risen Christ and had subsequent revelations that were given to him. And so it just doesn't fit that. So we know it probably wasn't Paul. And there's two other major schools of thought in terms of authorship. One is a guy named Barnabas and the other is a guy named Apollos. Now Barnabas was a likely candidate because he was close with Paul. Theologically, they would have been very similar in terms of how they lined out. They were both commissioned on that same first missionary journey back in Acts 13. Uh, he had some authoritative kind of role in the early apostolic church, so could have been Barnabas. Other people think and most likely think it was Apollos. That was kind of made popular by Martin Luther back in the 1500s, that the idea that maybe this letter was written by Apollos. We know that he was this Alexandrian Jew, and he was incredibly smart, and he was a great orator, and, and it just sort of fits the narrative there that if this is a sermon and, and, and Apollos was this great preacher, speaker, then most likely this was his hand. The truth is we just don't know. Um, and so we're going to refer to the book by the idea of the author. Um, but that's kind of the school of thought in terms of where it, it shakes down. We know that it was written somewhere between AD 60 and AD 70, meaning it happened pretty early on. Um, it doesn't have any references to the fall of the temple in Jerusalem, which is in AD 70. So we know that it was written pretty early on. Um, and it has a very specific audience. Hebrews was actually written to a group of Jewish Christians. It's why it's called the letter, or we're calling the sermon, to the Hebrews. It is Jewish Christians. These are people by birth that have been Jewish by birth, but have given and surrendered their life to Jesus Christ. And this was a very kind of tight 
challenging people group. Um, in fact, if we know anything from Scripture, um, it was a really difficult place to live and be, is to be a Hebrew Christian. Because you were pretty much ostracized by your family and your community. You have somewhat rejected the Jewish faith and proclaimed that Jesus is the Messiah when the rest of Judaism did not believe that to be true. Right? And so you are essentially renouncing that portion of your faith, proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah, the kind of community and the synagogue and tabernacle would have kicked you out. We, we kind of know all of these things. But this letter was written specifically to that group of people, educated kind of Jewish people that have given their heart over to Jesus, and they were facing some very specific challenges. What we seem to find in the Hebrews that they're facing, and they're facing two major pressures. One, that we're going to go back to Judaism. Like, this is too hard. And so they're thinking about just returning, giving up on the idea of Jesus, and just going back to Judaism. Or two, they're wrestling with Judaizing the gospel. And if you're not familiar with the idea of a Judaizer, the Judaizing the gospel, or or the book of Galatians, the idea of Judaizing the gospel is this, that we believe that, yes, Jesus is the Son of God. But in order to be saved, not only do you have to believe in him, but you have to hold all the um, religious law and practices of Judaism. So it was Jesus plus keeping the law fully. And Paul writes a lot of his letters fighting this single thought. The entire letter of the Galatians is fighting this idea of the Judaizers saying, that is such garbage. It is never Jesus plus anything. It is always Jesus alone. He is enough. He is totally sufficient. You do not have to be circumcised, keep the law perfectly, to do any of those things to be saved. And there was a group of people, Jewish people, that were going around saying, sure, you can believe in Jesus, but you're not truly truly saved unless you fully keep the faith. And so this group of Jewish Christians was really wrestling with this idea. Should we just go back to Judaism because life is hard? I don't understand it. Where's God in the middle of all this? Or <clears throat> maybe that is right. Maybe it's not just about Jesus. Maybe it's, it's Jesus and some other things. And maybe we do need to kind of perform to keep up the religious end of this so that it all kind of works out, almost as if we're hedging a little bit of our bet, saying, yeah, it's Jesus, but I want to make sure I'm also a good Jew so that all this works together. And so our author or our writer of this sermon, this letter, is going to basically come out and say, listen, and these crazy voices that are telling you anything in this world, that it's Jesus plus anything, I need to show you and I want to remind you that Jesus is better than all of it. He is supremely better than all of it. His sufficiency and his supremacy reign over all. And so what we're going to see in the book of Hebrews is this picture that life is really about trusting and believing that Jesus is enough. And if there's anything that I've wrestled with in my own personal life the most, it's got to be this concept. Because the idea for me is that I love Jesus and I want him to be Lord of my life, but I always work towards the more. So Jesus, I, I need this, or I want this, or I need to perform for this, or it's, it's me, and it's me wrapped up in these things. And, and if you could just answer this, or just give me this, or just provide a little bit more over here, then I'll be truly full. And it's always Jesus plus, Jesus plus, Jesus plus. And I always wrestle with the idea that if everything gets stripped away, is Jesus enough for me? And the book of Hebrew answers that question in a beautiful way by saying not only is he enough, but he is better than all than you can imagine. So not as he hit the bare minimum as being enough, but he wants to give you a life that is supremely greater than anything you could imagine or dream of. And that's where Hebrews takes us in this deeply rich theological journey to discover the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ in your life, that you don't need something else to fulfill and satisfy your soul. You just 
need Jesus. And so that's where we're going to be going. This morning, we're going to look at the first few verses as our author sets up this picture and gives us some attributes of who this Jesus is that we're actually going to be talking about. So if you've got your Bible, why don't you open up to Hebrews chapter 1, and then we're going to pray real quick, and we'll dive into it and kind of keep it a little succinct because we're going to do communion, celebrate communion together, and just a, a great Sunday. So let's take a moment and let's, let's just go before the Lord. God, all that to say that you are so good to us that this past year, while challenging, has been beautiful in a multitude of ways. But Lord, I'm excited to step back in and begin to work through some scripture and teach through a book and move in a direction, Lord, together. Weeks that build off each other, ways that we can fully engage in every word and sentence and nuance of scripture and the the wrestling that comes with that and the challenges that it faces and the beauty that unfolds in front of it. I'm excited about it. Lord, I take this time just to ask you to teach our hearts. Lord, nothing I say will do anything unless you provide revelation and you open the hearts of hearers, Lord, that you would even open my ears to hear what you're teaching me. God, that you would instruct us this morning and teach us something beautiful about the nature and character of Jesus. Take a moment in your own heart as you sit here and just ask the Lord to teach you this morning. In the next few short moments, just ask the Lord to teach your heart. Something fresh, something new, something alive, anything, whatever it is that God needs to speak to you, just ask him to teach you. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you. We do this every week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people, so pray for that person on your right or left or six feet in front of you or six feet behind you. Pray that God would move in them, um, even if you don't know their name. Just be in the habit of praying for other people. Make sure that everything that unfolds here on Sunday morning doesn't revolve around you and your entertainment. Be a person that has a passion for seeing other people encounter Jesus and, and just pray for them. Lord, we turn our entire morning over to you. We ask that you would just instruct and teach our hearts through your word. We know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you, and we don't take that lightly. Lord, this is your truth. It is the Theopunestos. It is the very breath of God. And so, Lord, we ask that you would teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look at the first four verses. And what our author is going to do is he's going to set us up to basically begin this process of showing us why Jesus is better. And that's kind of a simple way of putting it. He's going to show us just why Jesus is better than every other thing and every other option this world is going to want to present us. He's going to set that up for us. This is what he says in the first four verses. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by the Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, so that he became much superior to the angels, as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs." So 
our whole first setup here, you can tell it's not a letter that is written like a lot of our other gospel letters, right? You don't have this introduction that's like, I, I Paul, you know, apostle, da, 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 not a setup to like he does to Timothy, to Timothy whom I love, all these kind of pieces. It's written like a sermon. It sets up with this sort of great and incredible and beautiful intro. It's, it's written like someone's addressing this audience, this moment saying, let me explain to you what God is doing. And so we can see the sort of nuances immediately. Maybe this isn't a normal letter that will be passed around, but maybe this was a sermon-type teaching that was shared in a large setting with people listening. And you have maybe Apollos or Barnabas, one of these great orders in this Greek kind of Jewish-Greek culture that's standing up and teaching about the supremacy and the greatness of Christ. And they start off by saying, listen, in the past, God has spoken to our forefathers through prophets in various times and various ways. So he sets this obvious tone for the Jewish hearers out there saying, this is how God used to teach us. We all know that. The Old Testament is incredibly valuable, and God used the prophets as his mouthpiece. He spoke his word to people through the prophets, and he did it in various forms and at various times, meaning we didn't know when it was coming, and it came in different ways. But God used the prophets as his word and as his mouthpiece. So he sets up and establishes this sort of baseline for what we know to be biblically true, right? So he's not doing away with the Old Testament, which is really important. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He doesn't do away with the law. And so he sets up this idea for these Jewish hearers that the prophets were incredibly and still are incredibly valuable because that is how God spoke to our forefathers, meaning their words is still and are still the word of God. Okay? But that was the era. Back then, the recipient was our forefathers and the means was the prophets, right? And it came in various ways. And then he juxtaposes that idea of divine revelation upon what God is doing now. He said, but now in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So now in these days, these last days that we are in, God has spoken to us not through the prophets in various ways, but he has spoken to us through his son. Meaning essentially this, that the divine revelation spoken to the prophets was, was perfect, yet it was incomplete. And God in these days is actually speaking to us directly through the person of Jesus Christ. And not just referring to the words of Jesus, but to the entire life and heart and actions and words and miracles. The embodiment of Jesus, the whole of the incarnation. Meaning that God's word was spoken to the prophets in an incomplete manner, but is brought to completion and fulfillment through the words of Jesus meaning that Jesus' words are the very authoritative words of God. That they are not disjointed and varied across space and time, but that Jesus' very life is the embodiment of God's word. So he sets this initial thing up saying, this entire thing I'm getting ready to share with you is built upon this singular truth. God is speaking to us through Jesus. Meaning that Jesus' words and his life and his miracles and his actions are the movements and the pieces that God has put together to teach us and speak to us. So he sets that up by saying, now let me tell you about who this Jesus is. And he's going to give these seven attributes. And we could spend, this is why I think that getting through this book is going to be really challenging. Because we could spend a week on every single one of these. But I'm going to brush over them real quickly because he's going to unpack them later on in our study. But I just want you to hear them initially. And we'll kind of work through them. But there's seven of these things that he sets up and says, this is the Jesus I'm about to tell you about. This is why he's totally sufficient. And this is why he is better than everything else you can possibly 
imagine. He said, in the last days he spoke to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. So the first thing he says is that Jesus is the heir of all things. Now we know this is a fulfillment of Psalm chapter 2, where basically God says, you are my son and I am well pleased and you will have the inheritance of the nations and all things will be yours. He basically says that the inheritance of God will be given to the Son. And Jesus becomes the fulfillment of that. He is the heir of all that God is. And the beautiful thing about this for you and I is that Romans, Paul tells us that as followers of Christ, we surrender our life to Jesus, we become co-heirs with Christ. Meaning that because of Jesus, that he is an heir to the throne of God, that we become co-heirs with Christ, that we are grafted in to this incredible eternal gift that God has given us to the cleansing of our lives through Jesus, that we are co-heirs with Christ to all that God has, namely eternal life, freedom from sin. But this is Jesus, heir to all things. This is God's Son as promised in Psalm 2. And through, he, through whom he made the universe. The second thing he says, he is the heir of all things. Then we learn that he is the creator of all things. Now, we know this from our study in John. Those of you that have been here for a few years, we worked at the Gospel of John a couple of years ago and took us forever. But if you remember way back in John chapter 1, we see this idea that John builds into, which is Jesus is creator. And the basic idea is this, God and the Father are one, or Jesus and the Father are one. God the Father created the universe, and because Jesus and the Father are one, Jesus is ultimately creator God. And so because Jesus is creator and was there at the beginning in this triune picture, he not only has created all things, but in God's incredible dominion, Jesus steps into creation to redeem it. And that's the picture of John chapter 1 as a whole, is that, that Jesus, who was and is the Word of God, and in very nature with God, created the world, stepped into the world to redeem the creation that he breathed life into. The whole picture of John chapter 1. And, and our author reminds us of that truth, that not only is Jesus heir to the things of God, but Jesus is in fact God and is creator, meaning that all things have been made through him. And that's going to be important because we're going to learn in just a minute that he is going to hold all things together. But Jesus is creator of all things. So he appointed, right, heir of all things, and through all things have been made. The Son is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being. So we got him. Christ is the heir of all things, Christ is creator of all things. Christ is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's being. Now think about that sentence for a minute. It's one of my favorite pictures of this idea of Jesus in all the book of Hebrews. That Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Think about what that might mean. That you have God in his infinite, incredible glory, right? This is holy, majestic, mighty God that nobody could look upon. If you look upon him, you would die in the Old Testament. In fact, Moses turns away, his hair goes white, right? Like, if you gazed upon the holiness of God in your sinful state, literally people would drop dead. God's radiance and glory was so magnificent. And, and our author tells us that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, meaning that all of God's glory is wrapped up in the beauty of Christ. And I find this to be incredible because it's like staring into a light. You can't distinguish between the light and its brightness. It's like this one glorious thing. And that Jesus and the Father are wrapped up into this one glorious radiance, meaning to look upon Jesus is to look upon God's glory. Everything that we see Jesus do in Scripture is an expression of God's incredible and great and beautiful glory. And I just love it. 
Because Jesus, as he hangs out with tax collectors and sinners, and as he hangs out with the marginalized, and as he does things that are, that are so countercultural, he is living as the radiance of God's glory. That he just wasn't some random traveling rabbi that sort of did things differently. He was an expression and a perfect picture of God's glory. He, and even takes it one step farther. He says, not only is he the radiance of God's glory, but he is the exact representation of God's being. Now, if we just think that Jesus is a mere reflection of the Father, right, on earth, we're not understanding this theologically well enough. Jesus is the exact representation of the being of God, meaning that Jesus is fully God. It's like looking at God in a mirror. Every action of Jesus is an action of God. And you will be, if you, are, if you pay attention online at all and you hear common or modern teachings of Jesus, you will see a picture of Jesus that is flawed, that may have sinned, that may have had humanistic characteristics that overpowered his divine nature. You will see a lot of perversions of the idea of who Jesus was trying to reconcile his divinity with his humanity. And humanity oftentimes in contemporary modern looks at Jesus wins out. But theologically, it's just so incorrect. Jesus was absolutely holy and perfect. And in the exact every moment, every breath, every thought and every idea was the exact representation of holy, majestic, mighty God. There is no mistake in Jesus. There is no sin. There is no fault. He is God in the flesh and the incarnation, the exact representation of his being. Now, you got to understand how unbelievably important this would be for a Jewish person to hear, right? Like, we may understand that idea as followers of Christ, but if you are a first century Jew that is engaging in this idea of Christianity, to understand that a human, a person, a man, a rabbi, a traveling teacher was the representation and the exact representation, the very being of God and the radiance of his glory, you are ascribing divinity to a human and therefore you are a blasphemer and will be killed. And that is the reality. That is why the majority of the disciples and apostles lost their lives, not because they believed that Jesus was an unbelievable teacher and a great guy and we're going to put our hope in him, but because they believed and proclaimed that Jesus was God. That proclamation would cost you your life. And so our author sets us up by saying, let me explain to you why this gospel is so costly. Jesus is the heir of all things. He is the creator of all things. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of his being. He sustains all things by his powerful word. So Jesus not only created all things, but he sustains all things by his word. Now this shouldn't come as a surprise. We looked at it this summer and we looked at Colossians. The idea that all things in creation hold together because of who Jesus is. He holds all things in motion. That's called God's providence. He is moving and he is working and he is holding all the creation that he has made together. It is not an act. It is not a random a series of random events. It is not smoke and mirrors. That God in the universe is holding all pieces together. And at any moment, the snap of his fingers, it all falls apart. He is creator of all things, and in him all things hold together. This is why as believers it's so viably important for us to be grateful and excited about every breath that we draw. Because every breath that we draw, every step that we take, every move that comes from our body is literally a gift from the God that made it all and holds it together. Meaning there is never a moment in our life that God has not in, that God is not in, and God is not working through. 
God is always to be found. He is never missing. And all of creation holds together because of who Jesus is. God has appointed Jesus as Savior and sustainer of all things. Meaning he didn't set this in a naturalistic view, set this world in motion and just say, let the laws of nature play them out. I'm just going to watch. But God is intricately involved in every moment and sustains every breath and every atom and every teardrop is held together by the very nature of who Jesus is. He is sustainer of all things. Meaning the very reason we wake up and draw breath is because God is good. And so what our author is basically saying is that not only is he creator, not only has God given him dominion over all things, not only is he the exact representation of God's glory and his being, but he holds all of these pieces together. Does this sound like a traveling rabbi that's a good moral teacher? No, it sounds like the God of the universe, right? So he says all things, he sustains all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification from sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So two more. After Jesus provided purification of sin. Now from a biblical standpoint and from a Hebrew standpoint, who had the ability to forgive sin? God, right? This is what got Jesus in a ton of trouble. God is the only one that can forgive sins, right? What we learn here is that Jesus is the one who purifies us from sin. That he died on a cross. Because you and I were dead in our sin. That he conquered sin and death, was raised from the grave. So that we put our hope and our trust in him. We have purified lives in Christ. That Jesus forgives sin. He purifies and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Remember Jesus, when he makes the proclamation, when he says, Listen, go, your sins are forgiven. Instead of saying, get up and walk to the crippled guy, tells him his sins are forgiven. The Pharisees flip out. They're like, who has the authority to forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus says, so you'll know that I am from God. Take up your mat and walk. And at that moment, the guy gets up and he walks. Jesus' proclamation that he has the ability to forgive sins in this moment is a foreshadow of what would take place through his life and death. Jesus purifies. To put your hope and faith in Christ is not merely to just kind of put an idea that maybe one day when I die, I'll go to heaven. The idea simply is this, is that I am steeped and dead in sin. It is wretchedly running through my very nature. And that I can do nothing to remedy it on my own. I cannot save myself. I cannot work my way out of it. I cannot do enough good deeds. So Jesus, God's very presence, the radiance of his glory, the embodiment of his being, steps into humanity as the incarnation walks this earth sinlessly and flawlessly, voluntarily goes to the Roman cross, crucified, was miraculously raised, conquering death, that if we put our hope in him, we are purified from all unrighteousness, meaning that your broken, dead, sinful life has been set free in Christ. So he purifies us from all sin. And after he's done that, what does God do? God sits him at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So what that's saying is that Jesus gets dominion over all things. That sitting at the right hand is not just a move of power, it is a move of dominion and love. God made us. He breathed life into us. He loves creation. And Jesus takes up that spot as lover of creation, that he is moving and working through all things as heir, as sustainer, as creator. He sits at God's right hand and has dominion over creation that he loves and that he made meaning that you are not an accident. God is not absent. He is always at work because he absolutely and totally loves you. 
as evidence of the person of Jesus Christ who has dominion and is working in your life always, constantly, even when you may feel like God is far away. Our promise here is that he is always moving. Jesus is always at work. This is the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. He is in all things. There is not a a breath of air that we draw that God is not in. He is in all things, and through him all things hold together, and he sits at the right hand of the Father. And the final thing that we read here, we kind of wrap this up, he says this. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited, inherited is superior to those. So the, the Hebrews believed that the angels had this, they were this incredibly powerful, superior being, right? They were, they were just more. They believed that. In fact, we're going to see next week, the entire look is going to be why Jesus is better than the angels. But, but the author says here, Jesus is more superior. He wrote the word there is better. Jesus is better than the angels. And some people even said you could break this entire book down to that sentiment because our author uses that phrase 12 times. We see it really here twice. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. And the idea is simply this. Jesus had something that the angels would never have. He had a name that was given to him by the Father and a place that was given to him by the Father. And that place was, and that name was Son. And that place was at the right hand of God. So if you really look at it, while the angels are important and valuable and incredibly, uh, you know, hierarchy in terms of beings, if you will, they weren't God. And they weren't the Son. And Jesus is superior to them. So we don't pray to angels, right? We don't look to angels for salvation. We don't look to angels for power. We look to Jesus, who is in fact God, and is better and more superior to even those that we think are phenomenal, meaning Jesus is better. The entire book is this picture. It's wrapped up in the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ. And what our author did in this moment is he said, listen, God spoke this way and it was important, it was great, and it's still viable. But it was incomplete. So what did God do? He actually gave us his son to speak and to show and to demonstrate his life. And his son is so much more than just a series of announcements and messengers by a bunch of prophets. His son is actually God in the flesh. He didn't send a word through the prophets. He came through the incarnation as the embodiment of his word, to live in a way that demonstrates his incredible love and saving grace for creation. Because Jesus is the heir of all things, right? He is literally creator of all things. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. He is the sustainer of all things. He purifies us from our sin. He has been sat at the right hand of God in which he has dominion and power and love over all creation. And he has a name and a position that is higher than anything we could imagine that even blows the angels out of the water because he is in fact God because Jesus is better. And we talk about Jesus being enough. We're talking about it in terms of not only is he enough, but he is greater and bigger and better than anything we could possibly ever imagine. And he wants us to know that incredible deep love. So Hebrews begins here. And it's going to take us to this journey of when life is challenging, we face these struggles, and we want to turn and run. He's going to remind us that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And if anything shows us that truth, it's got to be this table, right? I mean, this is the evidence of what God has done for us as the person of Jesus Christ. 
that God gave us this, not only to celebrate as individuals, but to unite us as community across space and time. Then we celebrate this meal, we're celebrating it not just as the Vine Community Church, but as believers connected with other churches and people across this globe. That we are united to other believers because of what Jesus did for us. This is the act of sacrifice that led to the purification of our sins. On the very night that Jesus was betrayed, the night that all would run away, they would bolt those that he loved and cared about the most, those that proclaimed the most loyalty, they would all leave. On that very night, the night that he would be handed over to set the wheels in motion for his death and resurrection, Jesus, after the meal, he gathered the disciples and he took bread and he gave thanks. And after he gave thanks, he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body broken for you. After he had taken the bread, he took the cup and he said, This cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. That as long as you take of this cup and this bread, you are proclaiming the death and the resurrection of Christ, essentially, until he comes again. This is the picture of what Christ has done for us. And Scripture tells us that we're not to take it lightly. We're to examine our hearts, to understand what Christ did for us. And with this solemn heartfelt, deep gratitude and an understanding of the gravity of what has unfolded, we celebrate this incredible truth together. This table is not a denominational table. It's open to all those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. This morning we're taking communion um, uh, COVID style, which is we've pre-made all these little uh, uh, cups and, and you can take a bread and a juice as you feel called and led to come down and, and do that. But Don, our worship team are going to lead us in worship. Um, and so as they do that, we invite you to come down and share in this meal, then return to your seat and remain standing, and we will worship the Lord together. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for your infinite love us, care for us, provide for us. We thank you that you do for us what we could never do for ourselves. God, you are incredible. And we place our hope and our trust in you. Thank you this, of this picture of Jesus laid out at this table. Thank you that Jesus is the radiance of your glory. God, thank you that he is the expression of your very being, the exact representation that he is heir and creator and sustainer, sits at your right hand. Lord, that he purified us from our sins, that his name is above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and tongue confess on earth and under the earth that Jesus is Lord, he is better. Lord, as we celebrate this meal together, I pray that you would move in us and draw us closer to you. We ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. As you feel led and called, let's come and share in this meal together.